When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Mafia, a new podcast telling stories of America's criminal underworld. Gotti assumed the position of head of the Gambino family. And using the name Donnie Brasco, I was able to infiltrate the uh, Bonanno uh, crime family in New York City. Bugsy Siegel is an American mob legend. One man changed the whole texture and landscape of crime in America. Listen to Mafia every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. Five, four, three, two, This is Movies First with Alex First and Chris Coleman. Greetings and welcome to another edition of Movies First. Uh, This is the most exciting thing that's happened in the world of movies since an Iron Man 2 edition of Norton 360 was released a few years back. My name is Chris Coleman and Alex First is with us. Hello, Alex. What the heck are you talking about, sir? I I kid you not, movie promotion a few years ago when Iron Man 2, the movie, came out, they did a special... Norton 360, you know the the antivirus yes, yes, software. Yeah, they did a special Iron Man 2 promotion. If you bought your Norton 360 virus protection stuff, see this is this is promotion gone mad, is it? Not we're getting way away from movies, but I admire the fact that Norton's got involved. Good on him. Usually, you know, when I go along to see the previews, I suppose what we we get there is cross promotion there as well. Sometimes you get a show bag full of stuff, so. Often, you know, the energy drinks, they often have special editions of energy drinks, which I suppose makes sense because you're appealing to the 18 to 25 crowd. So, I mean, Chris Hemsworth may be on the can or or whatever if it happens to be an Avengers one or it's it's kind of like that. I've made that up. I'm not saying he is. But uh, you get your popcorn and you get your can of drink or you get a, a water and sometimes you get a poster. And then they've got the prizes, the, the, the giveaways. You know, that's always fun when you go along. Check under your seat or you, if you're really lucky. Some of these, on one occasion, with one of the romantic movies, they gave away a bike. A bike? Yep, I kid you not. A bike for two? No, it was a bike for one. Okay. But it was a bike, it was one of the Sparks novels, you know, the, these sort of syrupy type uh, chicks flicks, dare I suggest. And mm. sorry, that sounds really like it does. It does. Not, I make no further comment no, no. other than you, you started digging. You can just get yourself out well, of the hole. Look, I love the notebook, folks. I thought that was great. <laughs> and, and dear John wasn't bad. But there was one. There was one involving a bicycle, and they gave away a replica of what appeared in the movie. And it was a, it was purely to a media screening. So twenty five members of the media, and one of us got a bike. That didn't happen to be me. But uh, I mean, it's kind of. It's interesting. Nothing will influence a journo from thinking 
and feeling what we do about a movie. And often I'm asked by publicists, once I've seen something, sometimes before I've reviewed it, would you mind dropping us a few lines in terms of what you think of the film? So then let's say it's a movie <laughs> I, particularly, I, I find particularly abhorrent. So I, I basically turn around to them and say, I'd be more than delighted to. And I, I give it to them straight. I, I, in fact, I like discussing it when I don't like something. My, the reason that I do it is that I justify why I don't like it. And I again say it's my opinion alone. That doesn't mean that the whole world will think the way that I do. But, I mean, if I think it's a piece of garbage, then I'm going to say it's a piece of garbage. So I'm more than happy to accept the free T-shirt or the popcorn or whatever, as long as they know that that's not going to win me over. They don't expect it. But obviously there are giveaways associated with when you go to movie previews. Not all the time, but quite frequently. I'd love to see it, you know, if they've asked you for a quote uh, for a few lines about it and you've gone in and sent them, I'd like to be able to say this is the best movie ever, but I just can't. And then on the poster, all that would appear is the best movie ever, <laughs> Alex First. That would be a misquote, and of course they would never do that. No, no, never. but I'd like to see it sometime just to see your reaction. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's it's um, it's that's also, I suppose, uh, an interesting point because I... When I, I've reviewed quite a number of Owl and Cat plays, right, on our podcast, and my, one of the things that I suppose, apart from speaking to however many people we speak to on any given week or day, the, the way that the publicists use our quotes, they do. Often bill posters and posters for movies and shows use the quotes of reviewers. Obviously, they only use the good quotes, but, you know, it may be two or three words, it may be five or six, and then they attribute it to us accordingly. So, I mean, a program that I saw recently had, had a quote that I'd used. So, obviously, that was one that I particularly liked. But funnily enough, I was speaking to one of the co-founders of the Owl and Cat or co-directors, and I saw one, one that I, I don't know whether I reviewed with you or not, but I turned around to him and said, bad choice. Didn't like it at all. I thought it was a piece of trash. And he, he's got a great sense of humour and he's basically said, well, can't win them all. And I thought that was fantastic because I don't like slating something just for the sake of it. But as long as you justify it, that, that there's a rationale behind it. So there you go. Well, that's that's the thing. And that's what we do here. We say if, if we like, we say why. And if we don't like, we say why. Quite so. Let's talk about a perfect day. Okay, my perfect day, uh, a perfect day, I got up, uh, had bacon and eggs for breakfast. Oh, you're talking about the movie. Sorry. I am, but that, no, that's fine. You can keep on going with your, your hungry tummy. But this is 106 minutes, rated M, acerbic script laced with copious quantities of humour and pathos. It's an engaging comedic drama set in, wait for this, the Balkans. A group of well-meaning aid workers tries to remove a body from a well in an armed conflict zone. Does that sound like copious quantities of humour to you? Sure, that sounds like a really worthwhile area to find comedy. Yeah. Did, I, did, I, did I pull that no. off? No. Okay. This body was thrown into the well to contaminate the water and cut supply to the local population. Even less humour in that. What should be a relatively straightforward task, though, becomes anything but. In fact, it turns out to be mission impossible. As I say, these aid workers trying to remove a body from a well. And they cross the unrelenting landscape where unexploded mines are regular bedfellows like guinea pigs in a maze. 
It's like they, they're waging their own obstacle-riddled war inside another war in which the only enemy could be irrationality. The crisis they're trying to solve is humanitarian, but they have to keep their wits about them at all times and bite their tongues frequently. So this is a drama inside a comedy, inside a road movie, inside a war picture. Oh, I've got a headache. Yeah. Humour, drama, tenderness, danger and hope all fit into the perfect day. This film is about the people charged with the difficult task of bringing order to chaos. And the movie uses humour to distance itself from the heartbreak and heartache that's occurring. So as the co-writer and director, Fernando Leon de Aranoa says, the wittiest comments, comedy at its wildest and grittiest, its most desperate, often happens in the very midst of tragedy. Now, the way I see it, the two men at the centre of the film are cynical but heroic. The pair's crusty. They've been there. They've done that for a long time. But they still care about the outcome. In Benicio del Toro in particular, we see that time and again. In the little things he does, he acts quietly and methodically, but he really does know which way's up. He's got a good relationship with Tim Robbins, the equally seasoned war zone veteran who likes playing the wild man. The new kid on the block is Melanie Terry. She's green. She's got a job to do and wants to do it well, but she doesn't yet understand the nuance that's required to do it. She's going to learn. And early on, she's put through her paces by Tim Robbins. Into the fray steps an expert in conflict evaluation and analysis, Olga Kirilenko, a former lover of Del Toro, who's still dirty on the fact that when they got together, he didn't tell her that he had a girlfriend. Hmm. <laughs> and on her part, she left her boyfriend for him. It's been 18 months since they last saw one another, and clearly they still care for one another. But she in particular is understandably prickly. Now, how could something so basic, clearing a well, take so long to achieve, if it can be achieved at all? That's the question at the heart of this most endearing movie, set as it is in territory that's subject to war and where peace is about to descend. To, to me, there was an immediate believability in the larger-than-life characters. To a person, the five key players, and you've got to include the interpreter, Sergi Lopez, which I do, I, I reckon all of them oozed credibility and style. They showed respect for all parties in the conflict, and every time they faced an obstacle, they tried another way. So it was us, the audience, that appeared more exasperated than the characters themselves. We get frustrated. They've been part of the landscape for a while, most of them. So they know that they're going to face these long, tortuous discussions that lead nowhere. For all intents and purposes, the UN peacekeeping soldiers looked like they were chasing their tails. And the aid workers, well, they could certainly see the wisdom in bending the rules for the benefit of the locals who were keen to access clean drinking water. But time and again, red tape bit them. The ultimate irony occurs just before the credits to round out a most engaging and considered picture that I reckon deserves to be savoured. Fernando Leon de Aranoa et al. have done a fine job in exposing irrationality for what it is in a very rational but entertaining way that still manages to expose the dark underbelly, and it's called A Perfect Day. What's the chem chemistry like between Benicio del Toro and Tim Robbins? Because I think these are two actors, and I know that they've both periodically appeared at the pointy end of awards season, but for mine, nowhere near often enough. What's the chemistry like having them both yeah, on the screen together? they are together? terrific because, I mean, they're kind of like a pair of heavyweights, you know, going going pound for pound, uh, sort of right for left jabs, and, and it, the film is, is all the richer because the two of them are involved, no question.
Okay, excellent stuff. It's called A Perfect Day, uh, and it is given a score of... Seven and a half to eight out of ten. Let's move on. And we were talking about cross-promotion a little bit earlier, Alex. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can indulge in our own little bit of cross-promotion now because not only do, we, do you and I talk movies here on Movies First, we talk about things from all over the world uh, in Travel First. And uh, I was recently, as we've been discussing, a little bit in Travel First, and more to come on this, I was recently in California. While I was in California, nay, while I was staying but a block off uh, Hollywood Boulevard, literally, if you walked out the back of the Chinese theatre... You found the hotel I was staying at, and I'll tell you, great little hotel that we will tell you more about down the track. While I was staying there, the world premiere of this next movie took place while I was in Hollywood. Warcraft, the beginning. They shut down Hollywood Boulevard for hours for the world premiere. What I need to know is, was it worth all the effort? Well, it's interesting that you mention this, and here's a bit of a deviation along similar lines. When, on our last podcast, I spoke to you about Menopause the Musical, Women on Fire. So it was a 90-minute show that started at 7.30 and finished at 9 o'clock. We got out and we, we met some friends we hadn't seen for years. Just They'd been along as well, so we, we had a bit of a chat. So it was about 9.30 and we were walking back to our car and I'd remarked to my wife how wonderful and fortunate it was that there was one parking spot only two or three blocks away because you normally don't get that in the centre of town. So we were walking back there and then all of a sudden there were major roadblocks and police are plenty. Now, we were near the Hyatt in Melbourne, for those people who might know it, and the road had been blocked and we went up to the one of the police and said, you know, can we get through our cars there? No, um, I can't tell you exactly when you will be able to get to your car, uh, probably an hour to an hour and a half. And we said, really? <laughs> oh, that's great. No, so, when, when, when was this, Alex? When was this? This happened to be the same day that the... Vice President of the United States of America <laughs> decided to stay at the Hyatt Hotel. So, so you're not a fan. No, no. So we, along with everybody else, stood around, watched car after car after car entering the Hyatt driveway until eventually, yes, there was a, a garrison of vehicles, of course, that you would have with a vice president. And, and there, were, there were all these lovely, lovely horses, police on horseback as well. They were lined up all in a row. So, yeah, we, we had to wait and we did. And then eventually we got out of there. The police were very good humoured, I might say. But uh, yeah, it was one of those occasions that I'll remember for a long time. So it wasn't, well, it was the same thing in a sense as your Warcraft, the beginning, the opening night was the opening night of the VP here, at, here in, <laughs> in Melbourne. So the big question, was it worth it? Was what worth it? Waiting. To sleep. <laughs> Waiting for Joe Biden. Well, we did, we, well you, you couldn't actually see because the windows were tinted. So there were, <laughs> were nice... What about waiting for Warcraft then? W- w- would that be well, worth yeah, it? Yeah, look, I, I should say that they were in very nice vehicles. That, that's the one thing I can say. Look, it's 123 minutes long, Warcraft, the beginning, so it's a bit of an epic. It's rated M in Australia. And for the uninitiated, like I was... Warcraft is a franchise of video games, novels and other media created by Blizzard Entertainment. I think it's Blizzard rather than Blizzard, but there we go, in 1994. The series is made up of five core games. Are you familiar with Blizzard or not? No. Okay, five core games, the first three of which are in the real-time strategy genre where opposing players command virtual armies in battle against each other or a computer-controlled enemy. The fourth, the best-selling title the Game Changer, if you like, that was released in 2004, is a subscription-based, massively multiplayer, online role-playing game. 
MMORPG. Well done. Thank you very much. Exactly. Yeah. That's what it is, in which players control their character and interact with each other in a virtual world. It went on to become one of the most successful fantasies in the history of gaming. The most recent title, I mentioned there were five core games, is a digital, digital collectible game card or card game. Now, since its inception, more than 100 million players have experienced the mythology that's now well and truly the global phenomenon known as World of Warcraft. Conflict is at the centre of it, and it's the centre of Warcraft lore. So when Blizzard and the filmmakers decided to bring the property to the big screen, they chose to return to the start of the Warcraft saga and focus the creation on two contrasting worlds. Azeroth is beautiful and serene. Draenor is a dying planet whose inhabitants face extinction. The peaceful realm of Azeroth stands on the brink of war as its civilization faces a fearsome race of invaders. They're, they're orc warriors fleeing their decaying home to colonize another. As Terrible when the orcs move in next door. You, you, don't, know, you don't want an orc next door. Bang, there goes the Mate, neighborhood, yeah, really. Yeah, it does. And as a portal opens to connect these two worlds, one army faces destruction, the other faces extinction. So... <laughs> the worst of two worlds. From opposing sides, two heroes are set on a collision course that will decide the fate of their family, their people and their home. And so begins this spectacular saga of power and sacrifice in which war has many faces and everyone fights for something. It's directed by Duncan Jones, who did Source Code, and written by a guy called Charles Leavitt, who did Blood Diamond and Jones. So it stars... Tra Travis Fimmel from TV's Vikings as a commander. You've got Paula Patton from Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. She's cast as a half-orc, Garona. Ben Foster from Lone Survivor. And you've got Dominic Cooper as well. So quite, quite a few big names there. And in Azeroth, light and dark magic are the life force, part of the natural order that shapes the fates of all who live on the planet. The human realm is ruled by King Lane, played by Cooper, and his queen, Lady Taria, played by Ruth Negger, who was in World War Z. I say Z because it was an American film. These, these are benevolent monarchs who thrive in the resplendent, peaceful city of Stormwind. The one who's fought by King Lane's side since childhood is the mighty warrior Lothar, a role filled by Travis Fimmel, who's commander of Azeroth's military forces. This kingdom's enjoyed prosperity for years. On the other side of the multiverse, Draenor serves as the home world to these orc proud, savage people who've never known a life without war and strife. They have tusks. They're tusked warriors. They are eight feet tall. They have customised armour and a range of brutal weaponry that's been forged out of steel. And they're pillars of combat. They're born to fight. They're bred to survive. But as I mentioned earlier, the York planet's dying, and if their kind is to survive, they have to abandon their homes, travel to another world. If it must be conquered in order for them to survive... They don't see any problem in doing that. And their leader is a cunning, tyrannical shaman who, who may be orc kind salvation. Using a dark and dangerous magic, he's opened this portal to a new world. And supported by the orc's fiercest fighter and war chief, he unites the desperate orc clans into an invasion army known as the Horde. And although all other clan chiefs comply with the directives to invade Azeroth and vanquish the people there, one orc stands apart. So you've got the orcs basically wanting to take over this peaceful planet, and instead of that, one of them says no. And that's what the story is all about. Now, 
Okay, without going into further detail, I mean, as I suggested at the outset, I knew nothing about Warcraft when I entered the cinema, quickly picked up the epic battle that ensued, picked up on it, and even if it took me a while to understand what was behind the mythology, I, I expected little. In fact, I entered the cinema anticipating the worst, but found myself actually engaged from the get-go. I couldn't think of a better place to watch a grand show like this. I saw it in an IMAX theatre. And the sights, the sounds, the intensity naturally heightened by the best 3D technology in cinema today. The Orc Warriors look amazing. They're built like these massive muscle-bound tree trunks. They're ferocious. They're toothy. And the franchise, like so many others, is about power plays and subterfuge. Who's doing what to whom and why? At stake is peace, but the way to peace seems to be war. Go figure. It did a good job establishing the personalities, the character traits of the main players, Warcraft. Each of, each of them had time to shine as heroes and villains and traitors were identified. Mind you, just when you thought you had a fix on what was going down, the tables were turned, setting up the inevitable sequel, because this is the start of a franchise. So it's bold and it's brash and it's exciting, and I reckon adrenaline jump junkies get their latest fix and they won't be disappointed. It's called Warcraft The Beginning. Now, you mentioned the director and indeed co-writer earlier, Duncan Jones, yep. uh, the son of David Bowie. Yes, indeed. Uh, and he is, he is more renowned for... Uh, how do I put this? Slightly more cerebral stuff? Yes. You know, he was the director of Moon, which I thought was, was horrendously underrated. I really enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and Source Code was another of his yes. a few years back, which, again, I, I, I don't know if it was a hugely popular film, but I, I really enjoyed it because it made me think. This is a change in direction. I don't... Am I right in saying Warcraft is not going to necessarily make you think? No, I mean, it's pretty straightforward in terms of narrative, but there's a lot going on. And, I mean, things change all the time. Just when you think you've got a fix on it, you don't. And and I suppose that's about direction as well, and I think he's done a good job. OK, there we go. Uh, did you give it a score for seven, Warcraft at the beginning? Seven to seven and a half out of ten. OK, seven to seven and a half. You're listening to Movies First. This is Chris Coleman and Alex First with me. We're talking about all sorts of movies. Uh, if, if you're wondering, yes, it is a little bit of a catch-up. There are so many movies going on and we're doing our very best to make sure that we bring them all to you. Let's go to a movie called Miles Ahead. Yeah, why don't we? It's rated M in Australia, 101 minutes, inspired by events in the life. And it's an impressionistic inspired film, No Holds Barred Portrait, of one of the 20th century's music's greatest creative geniuses. I'm talking about Miles Davis, hence the title Miles Ahead. Working from a script that he co-wrote with Stephen Bagelman, Don Cheadle, who also happens to star as Miles Davis, makes his directorial debut in Miles Ahead. And in the... Isn't he becoming one of the most versatile actors oh, he's, he's a wonderful... in Hollywood now? He's, well, he has done for quite a number of years. I, I've loved his work, and I'm delighted that he's spread his wings a bit and he's doing something like directing at the same time. Mind you, there were all sorts of obstacles to overcome for Miles Ahead, and I'll get to that in a few moments. But in the midst of a dazzling and prolific career, I'm not sure how familiar you are with Miles Davis's music and his career, but... When, when he was really, as, he was at the forefront of modern jazz innovation and suddenly in the midst of all of this he virtually disappeared from public view for five years in the late 1970s. He was alone, he was holed up in his home, beset by chronic pain from a deteriorating hip and his musical voice was stifled and numbed by drugs and medications. So his mind was haunted by unsettling ghosts from his past. A wily music reporter, Dave Braden, played by Ewan McGregor, forces his way into Davis's home, literally forces his way in, and over the next couple of days, the two men 
unwittingly embark on a wild and sometimes harrowing adventure. At Stake is a reel-to-reel tape of the musician's unreleased compositions, which his record label, among others, is keen to get its hands on. Davis's mercurial behaviour is fuelled by memories of his union with the talented and beautiful dancer Frances Taylor. During their romance and marriage, Frances served as Davis's muse. And it was during this period he released several of his signature recordings, including the groundbreaking Sketches of Spain and Someday My Prince Will Come. Don Cheadle, he'd wanted to make an entertaining rock and roll movie about a multi-talented musician in a non-traditional, subversive way. And I reckon he succeeded in doing so. Art house rather than mainstream in style, Cheadle wanted to do Miles Davis, not just chronicle the highlights and lowlights of his life, because that process felt like Miles to him. And he's been steeped in Miles Davis's music since the age of 10. I'm talking about Don Cheadle. Mind you, the demands on him in making this picture were great. He, for example, he used social media to complete the funding. He had limited availability of his co-stars because they had other commitments elsewhere. And he personally was in every scene. Not to forget, he was a novice filmmaker. Every scene? Yeah. Yeah. So... I tell you what, it's a heck of a it's a heck of an ask, and as with all biographical movies, one of the issues facing those making it was what to include and what to leave out, because Davis was married several times, but they focused on his time with Frances Taylor because they linked that with the particular style of jazz. Ultimately, they decided to focus on depicting an artist going fellow, and Cheadle took his cue from Miles' music. Instead of a reverential biography. He wanted to push it in every way he could to go out on a limb and take a risk. One example of that was bringing in a character who's a talented young jazz musician waiting to be recognised, who they call Junior. He's actually Miles Davis years earlier, right? So in other words, they introduced two Miles Davises effectively into the movie. Quite a bold move. It works. And Junior's wife is Davis's first wife. So... Quite clever. Cheadle and Bagelman's script, it was visually orientated, key to certain musical cues. There's undoubtedly a raw and primal energy about Miles Ahead. It's certainly a warts and all account of a man who's on a downward spiral, one that could easily, very easily take him out. It's a portrait of a supremely talented but flawed musician who succumbed to drugs and drink and infidelities, such that he became a mere shell of a human being until his resurrection. Quite a complex screenplay, as you can already gather, And it keeps you guessing, looking for answers throughout, like a puzzle with the pieces not quite fitting together until the end. Some might find that perplexing and confusing, but although it does require concentration to follow, I reckon the rewards are most certainly there if you stick with it. Like you, I've always admired Don Cheadle as an actor. This role merely serves to reinforce my approbation. Although here he's got the added difficulty of directing, he tackles that along with his skill in trade, acting adroitly. The reckless portrayal of Davis also plays out in the representation of a number of the other players in the movie, including that of Dave Braden, who's trying to ingratiate himself into Davis's life so he can write an exclusive. It's something Ewan McGregor appears to have a lot of fun with. But really, it's Cheadle's Davis who's unforgettable. And as the title suggests, Cheadle's already miles ahead of other first-timers when it comes oh, to... Oh, I see what you did there. Thank you kindly, sir. Yes, miles <laughs> ahead it is. Score for miles ahead? Seven and a half. Excellent. Uh, We have one more to go, and 
Uh, I, I, I'm going to say here and now, Alex, it's not often that you come up with a movie that I know nothing about before we talk about it. Right. Well, Mustang, you do know where the car, uh, sort of wild horses and Mustangs, etc. Yeah, yeah, I, I get that. But, yeah, I don't know anything about the movie. Well, it, it was France's nomination for Best Foreign Language Film at this year's Oscars. Oh, I didn't get to see all the foreign language ah, nominations at this no, year's Oscars. No, no, I'm not blaming you. 97 yeah. minutes, rated M in Australia. Not surprisingly, because it's a nomination for Best Foreign Language Film, riveting drama about five beautiful Turkish girls whose lives are turned to hell by age-old practices. It's the start of summer. Remote village in the north of Turkey. Lale and her four older sisters come home from school, innocently playing with the boys in the ocean. Their parents have, pardon me, passed away, and they've been brought up by their grandmother whose reception when they return home is volatile, to say the least. She scolds them incessantly. She points out their sinful ways, accusing them of engaging in debauchery. When that never even entered their heads, certainly isn't reflective of the fun they had. All they did was frolic in the water at the beach, sitting on the shoulders of some of the boys from school. Oh, the thought police are going to get you for that. Exactly. So their grandmother's anger is nothing, though, compared to the strict disciplinary approach taken by her son, the children's uncle, who lives under the same roof. The family home slowly but surely turns into a prison for these lively youngsters. Classes on housework and cooking replace school. Before you know it, marriages begin to be arranged for the girls. The sisters, driven by the desire for freedom, fight back against the limits imposed upon them. The consequences of taking this action are significant, though. The co-writer and director, Denis Garmzay Ergovan, was born in Ankara, but has lived most of her life in France. She spends her time going back and forth between France and Turkey, where most of her family still lives. She feels particularly concerned by stories set in Turkey because the region is... Well, really fizzing. Everything is changing. She says recently the country swung towards a much more conservative position. Ergovan wanted to talk about what it's like to be a girl and woman in modern-day Turkey, where the condition of females is more than ever a major public issue. Every time she returns, she feels a form of constriction that surprises her. Everything that has anything to do with femininity is constantly reduced to sexuality. It's as if everything a woman or even a young girl does is sexually loaded. For example, there are stories... And, and get this, of school principals who ban boys and girls using the same stairs to get to class. Oh, gee. They build separate staircases, Chris. So Ergovan talks about a conception of society emerging that reduces women to baby-making machines who are only good for housework, and that in spite of the fact that Turkey was one of the first countries to give women the right to vote. That was back in the 30s, 1930s. And I mentioned the car. That's where the title is drawn from. Well, Mustang, the wild horse rather mm. than the car. And that, of course, symbolises the film's five spirited and untamable heroines. The minor scandal, by the way, that the girls provoked by climbing onto the boys' shoulders before being reprimanded actually happened to Ergovan. So there you go. She regards the movie as a bit of a fairy tale with mythological motives. She sees the five girls as kind of a five-headed monster that loses a part of itself every time one of the girls is absent from the story. I, I should also mention the music at this point, composed by Warren Ellis of Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. Oh, wow. Yeah. So only one of the performers chosen, by the way, had any previous acting experience, yet they gelled so well as a group. 
there's a great vitality and zest for life about them. Clearly, the biggest personality, as dictated by the script, was the youngest, Lale, and the child chosen. Well, what a revelation. Cheeky, engaged, outraged. She saw the situation deteriorating, wanted to do something about it. She was the only one really pushing the envelope, wanting to break free. I love the way the film picked up momentum from the get-go and didn't let up. While the innocent frolicking was what sets events in train, from there we, the audience, see the screw turn tighter and tighter until something has to give. We genuinely care for the children and what will become of them and yet are powerless to intervene. That, that's the best kind of movie where you, you kind of you want to do something but you can't. So you're involved, you're outraged. Dennis Gumsey Ergovan highly commend, I, I commend her for crafting such a moving story from the innocence of youth and the mistaken ideals of adulthood. It's called Mustang. It's rated M in Australia and, again, runs for 97 minutes. I love that it's built up of uh, inexperienced uh, theatre people. Uh, when you said that, it reminded me of, of course, uh, The Killing Fields. Yes, indeed. And, and look, this is a, a rare film. A rare. It's, it's a wonderful movie. It, it's up there with some of the best movies this year without any question of doubt. So keep an eye out for Mustang. It was the French nomination for the Foreign Language Film of the Year at the Academy Awards this year. And Alex, it didn't win the Academy Award there, but what does it get from you? Eight to eight and a half out of ten. Certainly a memorable picture. Hope you've enjoyed this extra edition of Movies First. Uh, I've got a sneaking suspicion, Alex, we've got a few more of these to do. There's so many movies coming out over the next few months. We're going to be very, very busy indeed. Look forward to chatting with you about them. You've been listening to Movies First with Alex First and Chris Coleman. Subscribe to the full podcast at Audioboom, Stitcher and iTunes or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. Welcome to Mafia, a new podcast telling stories of America's criminal underworld. Gotti assumed the position of head of the Gambino family. And using the name Donnie Brasco, I was able to infiltrate the uh, Bonanno uh, crime family in New York City. Bugsy Siegel is an American mob legend. One man changed the whole texture and landscape of crime in America. Listen to Mafia every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.